Shumrabyug. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome back to Sherlock. Sure, listen, the podcast taking a pop at culture. Sherlock, sure listen. 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 Oh, very good and very exciting, Benjamin. Hopefully not the most exciting thing that happens this week because it's been a very sparse week of pop culture and we're really scrambling around in the muck to find something to talk about. But look, don't worry. We've got two horror films to look at. One of the existential dread what's going on variety and the other of the wah, something's going to jump out and grab you variety. But not only that, you've seen something which is arguably barely in our remit, The Bear Season 2. And we're going to have a look at the continuous shitting of the bed that is modern Hollywood box office returns. Sure, listen, Michael, if that wasn't enough, and it isn't because it's been a sparse goddamn week, we're going to be taking a look at the topic of squad goals, the best damn bunch of lads and lasses in Hollywood history throughout the years. Because this week, Michael, I think I think tomorrowly, we're getting the release of bloody Mission Impossible 86. Tom Cruise is at it again. Tom Cruise, he's so old, but he's still lepping off things. Benjamin, it's um, yesterday yeah. by the time the listeners are listening to this. Yes. Yes, it's yesterday. I'll tell you what, Ben. I'll tell mm. you what. My mm. new favourite genre is what's going on in this creepy office. Is it horror? Yes, exactly. It's severance core, Michael. Severance core. Is that what it's? Is that what we're calling it? Okay, that's, that's what I'm calling it. That's what I'm calling it. Uh, not not since the office, Michael, which is disturbing to any non-American that's ever existed. But not since the office have we seen the unnerving quality of the horrors of the workspace displayed in such a surreal fashion as Severance, starring Adam Scott. Adam Scott was in it. I remember. He was, yeah. John Turturro, bloody Christopher Watkin was there as well for a little bit. It was a great show. Great show. Very eerie. Very creepy. Is this an evil organisation? Is there a supernatural element? No, it's just very fucking weird. But come here to me. Come here to me. What? It set off a trend, Michael. It set off a trend. And the trend is, oh, offices are weird and creepy, aren't they? Well, you don't want to be in that office. It might be weird. It might be weird. There might be weird stuff going on. Some sort of existential stuff. Yeah. So one of the things that's very, very interesting here, Michael, is that we've got John Hamm back again. Everybody's favourite. I like how in this he's playing an everyman, Ben. Just a schlubby everyman. (laughs) I haven't seen the hamster in a, a schlubby everyman role in quite a while, Michael. Normally it's, look at me. I'm John Ham. You've gotten me because I've got a bit of pizzazz, panache, and suave. I'm John Ham. I'm a sexy man from the 1950s. Hello. I think, funnily enough, Michael, a bit of that's being played on there because what we're getting is J- John Ham has become the face of the sexy office. Mm. Very good because of that thing where he was in advertising. Yes, he was. He was Donald Curtin's Michael. Donald Curtains. And uh, that's Donald Draper, by the way, ladies and gentlemen. Oh, very Sorry, that good. was a very off. Yeah. A very terrible off-pieced joke. joke there. Yeah, I yeah terrible. Uh, because a Draper would make curtains, so it's not really even that clever. Oh, I fucked it. I've fundamentally misunderstood the noble profession of draping. 
Yeah, drapery is the name of the profession. Oh, Jesus. That's just... Uh, well, Michael, I've just, I've just proven myself to be a poor domestic consultant. Nobody <laughs> should get their home designed by me because I'll send you to a curtner and there's no such thing. Jim Curtner. Ben, that's the German <laughs> equivalent. Hello, my name is Gustav yes. Kurtner. <laughs> I am here to design you the drapery some... for your living space. <laughs> you have some lights coming in through the windows? No good. We get rid No of good. It. Put out the black up blinds. <laughs> Thank you. You have been consulted by me, Gustav... What did I say my name was? Gustav Kurtner. Kurtner. <laughs> ben, shut up. Tell us about the corner office. Ben, is this... Is the corner office a new film that is analysing the one man's mental breakdown or is there really tomfoolery afoot I suppose that's what we're left to wonder I, I suppose that's what we're left to wonder Michael there seems to be uh, a little bit of a, a quasi supernatural feel to this a man joins the workforce it would appear Michael that John Hamm's character was in a position of power in his previous job the nature of his leaving that job be it dismissal or by choice is very much left up to conjecture and so we're, we're, we're left to wonder, because he says he commits himself to gaining the same position. I, I intend to gain the same position in this company as I had in my old company. So it's, it's, I, there could be, there could be a, a few little pepperings of me too in there, Michael. Maybe he's a big old creep. Oh, I never even thought of that, Ben. I assumed he might have died. Well, that's also possible, Michael. A good old fashioned death in the office. Yeah, I think this might be some sort of purgatory-esque hellscape. Ben, what I really liked is the juxtaposition between the gross, modern, kind of 1980s and forward office. And then essentially the happy place he finds is a old-fashioned office. As if almost he's he's made the past perfect. He's, what's the word I'm looking for? He's, what's the word, Ben? Idealised the for? past? He's idealised the past, exactly. He's idealised the past and idealised the old-fashioned notion of men in big wooden panelled offices. Yes, he watched an episode of Mad Men and said, my God, if I shaved my moustache and went to the gym a bit, I'd look like that man off the telly. If I just got my hair sorted off a little bit and started smoking fags in the office all the time. Then I'd get a big wood-panelled boy. It looks a little bit like the, the other existential dread office film, Office Space. So, Michael, I was just about to talk about Office Space, because Office Space, I suppose, is the is the one that kicked it all off, Michael. For those of you that haven't seen Office Space, Office Space is an early 90s classic. Or is it late 90s? Uh, you, you keep talking, I'll check. Okay. So, it, it stars everybody's favourite Flash Dad, whose name escapes me also. God damn it. Everybody's favourite. So, it's based... On a newspaper cartoon, Michael. A newspaper mm. cartoon. And this was a famous one. And we see it a few times. Uh, there's a character in it played by none other than Stephen Root. Okay, and he plays Milton Wadhams, Michael. Yes, yeah, yeah. He's uh, not having a great time. And he's a famously comical character who says, excuse me, excuse mm-hmm. me. And he tries yes. to get the attention of things. That is that is a very famous... Well, it was a very famous Funny Pages cartoon from American newspapers back in the day. But obviously, that wouldn't make an entire show, Michael. Um, although, in the early 90s, we would have seen shows like George of the Jungle, Dunstan Checks In, things like that, which were kind of wacky screwball comedies, and they might have created that. But they went with a slightly different satirical tone, Michael, mm. uh, for Office Space. And it stars... Sorry, everybody's favourite Flash dad, Ron Livingston. Oh, yeah, he was the dad in The Flash. 
He was the dad in The Flash. Um, and he plays Peter Gibbons in this, Michael. And Peter Gibbons is working in an office. And I tell you what, I tell you what, he's had enough. Ben, is he any relation to John Gibbons, who I went to secondary school with? Yeah, he's definitely related to John Gibbons. That is absolutely, definitely what's happening. Um, John Gibbons is, is your pal from school, is yeah. in this. Oh, very good. Ben. Yeah. Um, yes. Speaking, though. Are you still? Do you still have stuff to say about Office Space, or are we moving on? No, I do. Yeah, I still have stuff to say about Office Space because we we spent oh, so right, much time then. checking it out, Michael. Yeah, but this is a Mike is. Judge gig. Office Space is a Mike Judge gig, so it introduces the wonders of Mike Judge, who went on to do Idiocracy and other such fantastic things. Uh, Mike Judge, a famous satirist of the American culturescape, but it it features a man uh, who engages in a little bit of absurdity of his own, Michael. Um, so Ron Livingston's character, Peter Gibbons, has, I suppose, what you'd call a mental break in his mm. job. He's in an office space. He works at the bottom of the rung. He's under the world's worst middle manager and greatest example ever given to us by Gary Cole, Bill Lumberg, the man who comes in with the coffee cup and says, that'd be great. Um, and he just keeps sipping from the cup. Um, but he has a kind of mental break and he realises that he can just go into work do nothing um, and he does that again and again and again and the company keeps paying him he then hatches a plan with two bros of his from the company and they come up with a way of skimming money off the top of um, they they basically come up with a way of skimming money off the top of transactions made by the company one cent or two cent at a time and then they find themselves in a whole mess because they leave that to run in the background and they come back and they realize that they've basically skimmed millions of dollars off the top of the company because they didn't realize the level of transactions that the company was making. Fabulous. Ben, they call yeah. these days, they call that concept of going into work and doing the absolute bare minimum. It's not an existential horror thing. It's just a simple fact of modern employment. They call it the Ben Colopy method. Yeah, the Ben Colopy method of employment, Michael, you pretty much rock i don't even have one fixed employment michael i rock into different jobs and i put on uniforms <laughs> and then i just go to the end and I go uh, how are you um sorry i was supposed to be paid last week and they missed it can i just get it in cash and then for some reason michael they just keep giving it to me ben i'm only messing it's called quiet quitting Ah, i wasn't it's not really called the ben colopy method i've just exposed myself on a national podcast yeah, not for the first time. Benjamin, speaking of <laughs> people coming up yeah. and going, boo, look out. Um, there's a trailer for The Nun 2, which I, I don't know. Is that good? Is that something to be excited about? Michael, the, once again, the chutzpah on certain trailers is beyond me because the trailer says that she's the most terrifying being in the Conjuring universe. Yeah. To which I say... She, she might be. Is, yeah. she, is she? Is she? Is she what about uh, what about um, Annabelle? Is she from the Conjuring universe? I don't know. I don't know. I thought Insidious was from the Conjuring universe, but it's not. <laughs> no, no. Insidious is from the Red Door universe. The Conjuring is separate. But they do both have Patrick Wilson. Ah, uh, I tell you what. Is Patrick Wilson in the Conjuring as well? Yeah, he plays... Um, he plays... The those scam artists. What are their names? The two scam artists. Oh yeah, the two real life scam artists who in that are are good old fashioned sack investigators. Yeah, exactly. Is his name Patrick oh. Wilson? 
I tell you what, ladies and gentlemen, know. we're doing this on Sunday morning. We're doing this at a completely different time. It's it's just after nine o'clock, nine a.m. on Sunday morning, and I am way behind here. Why can I not think of the actress pa- actor Patrick Wilson's I, name? I I think it is Patrick Wilson. I think you spot it. Look, God damn it, I am groggy today, Michael. Groggy beyond <laughs> we're belief. So um, we're so it is, groggy. It is Patrick Wilson. Ladies what character does he play in The Conjuring? I don't Ed know. Warren, Southern Ed and Lorraine Warren. Sackic detectives in the South. Yeah. Now, they're um, the most disturbing creatures in the Conjuring universe because they're real. Michael, I th- I think rather than talk about that, I think you and I should talk about us being in a TV series about psychic detectives in the South of Ireland. Um, oh, and we go around awesome. sorting out things. That'd be a good little TV show, wouldn't it? Uh, oh, there's and fucking we'd ghosts, be- Blake. Oh, there's fucking ghosts. Um, and we call it going to see a lad about a ghost. That's what we call very it. Very good. Instead of going to see a lad yeah, about a ghost. Very ben, good. And it'd be us. Yeah. Ben, what will it be us doing? <laughs> it'd be us just wandering around the south of Ireland going, as two Dublin lads, very oh. importantly. So we'd, oh, very good. we'd be fishes out of water, Michael. That's the no point. No one help us. That's yeah. the point. And... Unlike the Warrens in the Conjuring universe, we'd know we were a couple of hucksters and we'd be trying to get one over on the lads down in the south of Ireland because we're big city boys, big smoke boys. Yeah, we'd be we'd be checking out ghosts in Waterford. Yeah, but then unfortunately, Michael, what we discover is oh, there's loads of fucking ghosts in the south of Ireland and they're real. Yeah, and it's not worth it, to be honest. They're yeah, there's a lot of haunted sheep. Yeah, yeah there's a lot of haunted sheep. They're mostly ghosts of farmers who died in dispute over the land with their own brother. Ben! <laughs> we could probably get Richard Harris' ghost in it. We could, yeah. We get Richard Harris in. We get uh, any sort of the Bull McCabe type character. Ben! <laughs> yeah. Your favourite bit, you were texting me before this, and your favourite bit of this was the actress Tysa Farmiga in her non-cosplay. So, is, is Tysa Farmiga Vera Farmiga's daughter? No, she's her younger sister. Oh, What's yeah. she doing here? Why is she? I don't, what's going I don't on? No, I don't. Is she one of the Warrens? Is she playing Lorraine Le Warren? Yeah, As a youth, because Tysa Farmiga did play, or sorry, Vera Farmiga did play one of the Warrens. She played Lorraine, yeah. And now the sister's there just to give it a weird echo or something. I, I don't know. Um, I don't know, Ben. I don't know. I don't remember what's going on in this series, but they are they are way too similar looking. For them to be cast yeah. as not related. So they must be related. Yeah. They must right? be. They, must, there, there they has, must be. There has to be a connection. No, they're not. They're not related. <laughs> oh, what the fuck? She's playing a French nun. That is weird. That is so very weird. weird. Because there are very few fist- sisters. Fisters. There are very few fisters who look as alike as Tysa and Vera Farmiga. Yeah. So, there, there are. <laughs> that's weird. That's so strange. There were some good ghost scares in it, though, in the trailer. I like the bit where she popped her head through the wall and said, she's in there, just standing there, and everyone's like, oh, that's spooky. And then she went, it's not as spooky as this. Ah! And then she came out through the wall and, and grabbed her. Yeah, it wasn't great, was it? It was very scary. I had a little, I had a little lep, Michael. A little lep. I was like, oh, Jesus. Oh, very spooky hell. and scary. Um very spooky I, I stuff. think this is great. I love this. I love this modern era of horror we're going through of vast interconnected universes all tied together by Patrick Wilson and the Farmigas. Is it? Is it? Is it the Wilson versus that what we're calling it? Is, mm, the Wilson verse of horror. 
Was he? He wasn't in Sinister, though, was he? Ah, uh, he's probably in the background somewhere. They'll probably do a retcon, Michael, and put him in there so they can connect it. <laughs> Replace Ethan, uh, not Ethan Hunt. What? Who was in? Who was in Sinister? <laughs> Ethan Hawke. Ethan Hawke, yeah. Not Ethan Hunt, that's Mission Impossible. Oh my God, I'm ladies so and gentlemen, asleep. La- <laughs> ladies and gentlemen, once again, it is Sunday morning and not the regular time. Fucking hell. Podcast. What are we talking about? This is insanity. We are rough around the edges. Have you seen any television this week? <laughs> Michael, Michael. Last year. What? I was flicking through the Disney Pluses, Michael, and I found something called The Bear. Yeah, I've and watched a couple had, of episodes of it. It's very good. Yeah, it had uh, uh, Jeffrey Allen White in it, Michael. And I went, oh, I liked US Shameless. I'll give this a spin. And what I did was, Michael, then I binged the entire season in one big go. They're only about 20 and minutes it was each, one of the, though, aren't they? Yeah, they are. It's very easy to binge. Mm. And probably... One of the best TV shows I've ever seen, Michael. Probably. Very good. Season one of The Bear is a stunning achievement in terms of close personal storytelling, well-acted scenes, a genuine look at the socioeconomic condition of America, the backgrounds from which people struggle to achieve things in that socioeconomic climate, and the absolute tragedies that can occur in the everyday, Michael. A stunning achievement. It's well acted from top to bottom. Uh, Sydney Sweeney's character is not Sydney Sweeney. Sorry, it's just Sydney. Her character is amazing in it. Um, it has uh, an Italian American family dynamic that would put The Godfather to shame. It was a stunning achievement, and I said to myself, Michael, if nothing else follows this, it will be a gem. It will be a little. It will be it the tweezers that. A, it, yeah, it'll be the tweezer placed culinary gem that a specialist mm. would go ah, and they do a close-up of in netflix and call it chef's table It'd be that mm. and then michael yeah. i found that the bear season two was out michael but michael here's the here's the scabby thing right it's out in that america on disney plus do you think we can get it here on disney plus what is this ben is this the 90s when things used to come out at different times what is this? Is this where we found an internet rumour somewhere about a TV show that was great, but we'd have to somehow figure out some kind of way to get to that America and bring it back? Is this like is this like the 90s when you would hear about some sort of mystical video game that had only come out in Japan? Ah, oh, fucking bullshit, Michael. So anyway, what I did was I booked a flight and I went over to that America. I said, fuck this, I'm not Oh, waiting. very good. Um, and I went straight over to that America and I watched The Bear Season 2. And as we all know, Michael, as we've discussed many times in this podcast, season twos of things have a lot to live up to. It'd be very difficult do, mm. to kind of push that world forward and grow it out a little bit. But, Michael, I am happy to report that The Bear Season 2 is an absolute triumph and surpasses the first season in ways I could never have imagined. Oh, my God, really? Does someone develop force sensitivity? Yeah, it's great. It's brilliant. Um, Jeffrey Allen White's character, Carmi, gets a lightsaber in the first 10 minutes. And then it turns out that the entire thing was set on a planet in the Dagobah system in Star Wars. Benjamin, if you had a lightsaber, you could get an incredible sear on your beef. 
That's precisely what he uses it for, Michael. You would think that he would go and fight the forces of the Sith, but he doesn't. He uses it for near-perfect sears on the various mm. meats that he serves yeah. in his cantina, the bear. Mmm, delicious. Yeah. Which raises lots of interesting Star Wars like questions like, does the bear exist in the Star Wars universe, as in the concept of a large ursine creature, is is that possible? But anyway, uh, the Bear season two, Michael, uh, far be it from any of that, is a very down to earth expansion of the microcosm of culinary arts that was the Bear. It is phenomenal. It goes to the wider uh, Chicago dining scene. It looks at international fine dining. Uh, many of the side characters, Michael, that we got in season one, get. A lot of fleshing out here. This is slow storytelling done right. None of your forced exposition. None of your quick flash scenes. This is each character getting their their moment to shine. And shine they do, Michael. Some of my favourite episodes of this were uh, Lionel Boyce's character, Marcus. Um, and there's there's no spoilers here, Michael, because it's in the trailer. He gets he gets further training in the fine art of pastry and uh, sweets, the old dolces of life, Michael. Oh yeah. And he goes and he serves under um, a specialist to do that, and he gets a whole little arc episode, Michael, a beautifully shot little arc episode where we see him improving his skills. It's an absolute joy to watch. Uh, Lisa Colonzias' character Tina has struggled for acceptance, Michael, and a place to call her own since season one. And we get a little mini arc of her kind of finding her place as she attends culinary school to become a better chef. Very, very interesting, Michael. Uh, but probably my favourite one of these, Michael, is uh, the, car- the the actor that plays Richie, a guy called Ebon Moss ba- uh, Bakrach. I could get that wrong. Bakrach. I'm not sure how to say it. But... Bert Bacharach. He plays Richie, who is easily one of my favourite characters on the show, Michael. A schlubby 40-something man who cannot get his life together. But he has an amazing arc in this, Michael, where he learns the 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 need for taking responsibility in your life. And it's absolutely stunning. But I think what makes it best, Michael, is that we don't see any radical transformations of characters. One of the things I hate in any piece of writing is... When a character learns a lesson and then suddenly they're just a whole new character. They don't make any mistakes anymore because they've learned their lesson. They got it. They, mm. they, they were taught a lesson by the universe. They were karmically corrected. And now they don't make that mistake anymore because they're great and they've learned their lesson. I'm doing That's finger fiction, guns. Baby. That was the finger gun sound there, ladies and gentlemen. Mm. Yeah, yeah, That's yeah, fiction, yeah. baby. Um, and the bear stoically refuses to do the full 180 turnaround, Michael. So the characters improve incrementally and they gain new skills and they, they gain new coping mechanisms. However, that doesn't mean that they won't be tested in the crucible of the kitchen, Michael. Um, mm. And plenty of times we see their new growth fail, as in two steps forward, one step back kind of gig. Uh, is it one step forward That's- or two steps back? Yeah. Yeah, it's one step forward. The way you've described is still progress. Yes. So I I think that's probably a better way of looking at it. I didn't butcher it on purpose, but I'm going to use the butchered metaphor, Michael, because I think it works a little bit better. It is two steps forward. Yes, they grow as characters. However, there are plenty of setbacks that make them revert to type, and they have to kind of reapply their knowledge and work their way through it again. It is excellent. 
The other thing that happens in this season, Michael, is I think it creates what is the greatest episode of television I've ever seen. And I think that's pretty big. I see what I got to see what is possibly one of the greatest episodes of television of all time. Now, I won't spoil this because I don't think that's fair because it's not out uh, here in Ireland yet. It's only out over in that America. But we finally get to understand Carmi. Carmi is Carmen Berzato. That's his full name. And we finally get a, a larger glimpse into the Berzato family and how it works in one of the most unique episodes of television I've ever seen. Um, it is incredibly fueled, incredibly uh, well shot. It is a very, very, very magnificent piece of well-crafted television. I, If you watch nothing else, watch the Berzato episode of season two of The Bear, because it is jaw-droppingly good. Anyway... I watched The Bear season two. It was great. It's good stuff. Very good. Very good and very fabulous, Benjamin. I saw The Bear season one and I thought it was quite good. Um, I loved the complete and utter lack of exposition. That's my favourite thing about it entirely. You're just going to have to figure out who these people are the way real people figure out how real people are. No, you get more of that in season two. So you'll enjoy it. Good. Well, I better. And if I don't, I'll blame you. Benjamin. Speaking of blaming yes. you for things not going well, it's been an absolute nightmare of a year for Hollywood. Hollywood's having a tough old time, Michael. In some senses, Hollywood's having a tough old time, but in other senses, it's going okay. So for every major big studio flop this year, and let's just say, for example, The Flash, Indiana <laughs> Jones, yeah. uh-huh. Indiana Jones, The Flash... Um, what else? What else flopped this year, Ben? That what? Trans Transformers did okay. Transformers. Transformers did okay. Oh, and whatever. How? Yeah, it always does. Guardians of the Galaxy did okay. It wasn't kind of breaking records left, right, and center. Um, Elementals from Pixar has absolutely flopped. Just absolutely shit the bed, Ben. And we're kind of. It feels like. It feels like we're witnessing the death of the big studio system again. Mm. You know, it's it feels like perhaps Disney and Warner Brothers, the kind of the big two, for want of a better term, have kind of shit the bed a little bit. And it's time for them to totter off into obscurity again. And the okay. delicious and ironic thing about this, Ben, is like everything, this is just history repeating itself. Go on. Right, so Ben, are you familiar with the with the concept or, or the idea or the era in Hollywood known as New Hollywood? Is that an 80s thing? No, it's a 60s thing. Oh, forget me. Get out of here, Ben. Take yourself out to pasture, pal. Take your, you're, too, you're too young, Ben. You're too young and unaware of the world. Ben, when you think of yeah. a, a film, when you think of a film, yeah, you know when you're thinking of a film, mm. What do you think about for a film? Like, if you, if I was to say to you, The Godfather, Ben, tell me some facts about yeah. The Godfather. Oh, it's got Bobby De Niro in it. And, oh, yeah, okay. And Al Pacino. And yeah, who made it? Um, um, uh, uh, Brian De Palma? Is that Brian De Palma? No, okay. it's not one of Brian De Palma's. Okay, let's go with that. Damn it. <laughs> Very good. Um... 
Damn it. His daughter was in the third one, Ben. Uh, oh, Coppola. Francis Ford Coppola. Thank you. Is uh, Yeah, yeah. He's Nick Cage's uncle. Um, yeah. So, <laughs> so, come here. What I'm, what I'm trying to get at is that in the 60s, in the new Hollywood era, um, people started... It started the trend of director-led prestige movie making. Mm-hmm. So the the 60s is when movies started being sold on who directed them, not which studio owned it and which stable of stars that studio had. Because you'll be familiar so, with the concept, Ben, of the big studio system from the 40s and 50s. Yes, it was it was massive, a complex, Michael, huge. An absolute complex, Ben. Studios owned cinema chains and mm. studios essentially owned actors. And you could tell which studio was bringing out a film because it would have some of your favourite actors from that studio in it. And I'll tell you what, no one gave a flying shite who directed it. Directors were disposable, repeatable you can put anyone in to direct it because they were doing a studio mm. picture. Does any of that start sound familiar in the slightest, Ben, to you? Yeah, sure. I think we saw, we've seen some of it play out over the years in various Coen Brothers movies and things like that. We've we've had a few looks at that. We got Babylon earlier this year that tried to look at some of that as well, I think. And oh, yeah, yeah. yeah, so that's, a, it's it's now being investigated a bit more. But Michael, we're at a big turning point now, aren't we? Go on. Well, that's the thing, because... In the 50s, Ben, the 50s saw a big slump in cinema attendance because people were getting a bit fed up with it. A a number of new competitors to cinema had come on the scene, the biggest obviously being television. The goggle Bloody television. Yeah, bloody Bloody television, television. And television was providing people with a cheaper, home-based alternative to going to the movies. And the studios were like, well, if, if that's going to be our competitor what we really have to do is stop making these uh, little dramas and stop making these slice of life uh, comedies and instead what we'll do is we'll make things that have to be seen on the big screen to be enjoyed we'll do big time musicals we'll do technicolor we'll do surround sound we'll do any sort of gimmicks to get people into the cinema yeah, is this something to really to bust. All, is this sounding reminiscent <laughs> of any sort of era of, of of cinema? Now I mean, yeah. now I'm talking about. Yeah. Oh, yes, Michael. It, yeah. So the gas thing about it is, we we seem to be watching the history repeat itself. Except this time, the enemy, of course, isn't television. Although it is to an extent television, because big what used to be big Hollywood stars are appearing on inverted air quotes. TV shows, but the real enemy yeah. this time is streaming. Yes, it's changed the landscape, Michael. And as cinema did in the 50s, it has reacted by going, well, if people are not sure about going to the cinema, we have to make spectacles that can only be enjoyed in the cinema. Yeah. That'll get them in. Your Infinity's Wars, your your The Flash, your Pandora 2, Avatar's Revenge... Mm. So, there's there's so many parallels, Ben. The the other thing that kind of, or that in retrospect, that um, reviewers say almost killed cinema in the 50s was learning the wrong lessons. So, for example, 
we had a half a decade where every film was another studio's attempt to recreate the success of The Sound of Music. Yeah. Which this era that we're currently living in is definitely going to be remembered as everybody trying to recreate the success of Avengers. Yeah, constantly trying to replicate one success over and over and over again. And I I, I think... You know, interesting to your theory, one of the biggest mistakes that Hollywood makes these days is that they think there is a learnable lesson to a major hit. And I think that Hollywood executives in the current landscape are always looking for a cookie cutter recipe that they can create from a major success. I don't think that a lot of Hollywood studios recognize the the almost perfect coincidental timing of some things Um, and I certainly think given the writer strikes that are currently going on that a lot of Hollywood executives don't understand the value of good writing Mm. uh, on top of that so that's what came out of uh, of that kind of slump in Hollywood in the 50s is this new Hollywood era Ben and the new Hollywood era is kind of famous for these as i said director led dramas and slice of life movies and lower lower stakes maybe not lower stakes but kind of more grounded ben i'm going to i'm going to rattle off kind of the the big hitters of um what is considered the new hollywood era and you can make ooh and ah sounds one of your favorites ben and in fact the film you've based most of your life around the graduate Yep, that is my entire existence to date. Michael Dustin Hoffman, my guru, lead me forward. Yes, very good. Um, Rosemary's Baby, Ben. Night of the Living Dead. Easy Rider. Easy Rider, another film that I've based my entire life on, sadly lacking the equilibrium to even attempt to ride a large motorised bicycle. Yeah, no, you'd fall off. Uh, Bonnie and Clyde, Benjamin, you're you're uh, you're still looking for that bank. Yep, I'll find that bank one day, and when I do, pew, pew. Hmm. So, the only thing that, you know, everything is secular, Ben, and everything everything has exceptions. But what's what's weird is, rather than heading into prestige drama or, you know, auteur-led cinema production, the reaction in the 2023s seemed to be, just give us the Mario movie. <laughs> that's that's been the entire Hollywood philosophy since then. Just do that again. Just just do it yeah. again. Just give yeah. us a Mario movie two. Yeah, just make a sequel. Make a sequel. Yeah. So, well, I mean, this is it. This is. I mean, the question is, where is it going to go? Uh, well, Michael, I for one, I'm looking forward to the Bear season thirty four. Um, that that'll be good when that happens. I'm looking forward to Superman '85. This time, it's another actor. And yeah, I I think the lesson that Hollywood always fails to learn, Michael, and we've said this a few times, is they think there's a bankable franchise. They they think that they think that it's possible to continually cash in on the same concept as if it's the concept and not the overall movie that is making the money. I I think Hollywood executives don't understand the difference between a well-made film based around a concept as opposed to a concept by itself. So very often they'll be like, 
okay, the Avengers. The Avengers did well. People want superhero teams. And it's not necessarily that people wanted superhero teams at that time. This was the culmination of several different movies with a payoff. Mm. So we had been slowly absorbing the Marvel Universe over a series of years by the time that we got to the original Avengers movie. And there was a payoff involved. And it wasn't necessarily that everybody wanted huge teams of superheroes. Yes, they did. But that's the... No, they didn't. But that's the lesson that Hollywood learned. And then that got even worse, Michael, when we got all the way through the Avengers cycle and reached Infinity War. And people went, oh, they really love superheroes. And it's like, no, we're getting the payoff for nearly a decade's worth of work where we had multiple movies all charging towards the same point, And this is the massive payoff to that. Now, along the way, audiences became invested in different characters, invested in different ideas. And that's how it works. We kind of built a relationship with these films as we went along. However, the answer is not make everything superheroes. That's not what people wanted. And now, Michael, we are in a superhero saturated landscape where most of us are going, eh, eh, hmm. So it looks like yeah. we're just the only problem is that our our saviors for this year there are three tentpole movies that are going to come along and save this year Mission Impossible 11 Yeah yeah this time my hip is broken I reckon I'm dead yeah I reckon I'm absolutely dead I'm absolutely sending it Ben so there's <laughs> there's that then there's Barbie, which yeah. is based on a 1950s franchise, and there's Oppenheimer, which yeah. is based on a 1940s bomb. So, like, it's it's all still quite regressive and franchisey, except maybe Oppenheimer. I I I think it's it's funny that you say that because it, it's still very much auteur syndrome, isn't it? It's it's that shift away from the studio and the stable of actors that belong to that studio and the focus on the vision of the the auteur, which I, you and I have spoken about this in the podcast before, Michael. We both have issues with the auteur uh, vision of filmmakers where, you know, oh, it's it's Zack Schneider's Justice League, to Mm. which you would say, what? What do you mean it's Zack Schneider's Justice League? It's it's a huge movie. Uh, but I think that's interesting. I think you've put your finger on the kind of the tension, the cognitive dissonance of the current system, where it's not really the director. Like, okay, some directors are able to leave a, leave a mark on the studio system and you can recognise that director's work. Like, for example, James Gunn with Guardians of the Galaxy Volume 3. But are you telling me that yes. no one else could have directed Guardians of the Galaxy Volume 3? I think... I think Marvel could have got someone else to do it. And sure, it might have been missing a little bit of polish or a little bit of spark. But I think they could have produced a broadly similar film. Although maybe they would have just made Ant-Man and the Wasp. Yeah, see, this is the thing. We don't really know. But I think there's a limit to auteur dedication, Michael. I think one of the interesting... I think James Gunn is probably the, the greatest success story at this point... For that kind of filmmaking. James Gunn makes a very unique, particular type of film. Mm. Uh, how, however, however, yeah. that uniqueness has definitely been toned down over the course of his career because he's fallen into certain patterns. So, 
in the beginning, James Gunn made unusual horror films and stereotypes and, and things like that. Things like Slither. Um, oh, yeah. You know, very out there, very different films. And Marvel took a big swing and said, oh, we'll give him a go. You know, we'll we'll see what he can do. And he happened to create, at that point, one of the more unique superhero film franchises for them. Mm-hmm. Guardians of the Galaxy 1, when it came out, was very different tonally. And I would argue that it is that tone that was carried through to the Marvel Universe as a whole. Well, yeah, the but, Marvel Universe is already pretty well established. But Ben, the whole point I'm trying to make is that this is probably coming to an end that James Gunn's success in this is probably indicative of this is all going to end and be replaced yeah. by some sort of new movement and as is always the case when you're in it we won't really see it until we look back in 10 years and go ah that was the moment when it started to change yeah so there there is we're probably standing on a turning point at the moment but we're, we we can't see it Exactly, that's what I'm kind of getting at. And I tell you what isn't the turning point. Guardians of the Galaxy 3 isn't the turning yeah. point. The Flash yeah. might be considered to be one of the turning points in the end of it, but it's not the start of whatever the next movement is going to be in cinema. I don't know if The Flash is more like the canary in the movie land, in the movie mine, as as it were. Yeah, you know, yeah, yeah. The Flash, Indiana Jones, four or five. All of these are going to be looked back on the era of flop busters. I heard that said the other yeah. day, and I quite liked it. Yeah, you can keep that. We'll we'll carry that through into our own podcasting, Michael. Flop busters. I quite like that. But it, it, we'll just steal that from whoever I heard say it. The thing I find most interesting about that, Michael, is that there are, you know, James Gunn has been given an entirely new job based on his ability to deliver superhero movies. And I think it's placing an awful lot of faith into a man to be like, you can you can revitalize our dead superhero movie franchises, can't you? You can just yeah, come yeah, to DC and But don't touch up. a lot of them. A lot of them are off limits. Yeah, please, please no Batman for you. No, James. Don't no. touch Batman. DC have a weird thing with Batman, don't they? Just let people do Batman. Stop being such weirdos. Stop being such bloody weird. If if anything, Michael, they've they've just proven that that Batman can be done well with Matt Reeves' Batman because he's he's a weird little guy. He made a weird little film, but people loved mm. it. Yeah, yeah, it was great. Benjamin. Yeah. Speaking of Hollywood's obsessions with doing the same thing over and over and over again, we're about to see. The latest Mission Impossible. Mission Impossible, I'm dead, I reckon. The Australian yeah. cut. Oh, I'm dead, I reckon. <laughs> I'll tell you what. This is an incredible film franchise. What an incredible film franchise. Michael, you said to me before this podcast that you watched, you rewatched Mission Impossible 1 for this, which is a film that is 30 years old. Not quite, but 1996. But I... It's so old. What an unbroken run of a franchise is the Mission Impossible franchise. 27 years old, Michael. Incredible, Ben. I watched Mission Impossible. It's not called Mission Impossible 1 because at the time they didn't know there were going to be 38 of them. It's just called Mission Impossible. <laughs> and It is, yeah. Yeah, and I watched the opening scene and I was like, is this is this a period piece? This is so weird. It's incredibly dated. It's so dated, Ben. John Voight is having a having a fucking Rothmans on an airplane. 
He's just smoking a fag on an airplane. You can't do that anymore, John. What are you doing, John? You can't do that, John. What are you doing? People are looking at cassettes, Ben. They're taking out cassettes on airplanes and plugging them in to watch movies. This is amazing. Um, it is incredibly dated. And what's what's hilarious about that, Michael, is, you know, the cassettes to play videos and stuff. There was a little attempt there to show, like, how technologically modern the 90s were and how spycraft had changed. Like, all of those little, all of those little moments where we see what is now, like, an outdated piece of analog tech were there to show you, we're basically looking the audience dead in the eye and going, this isn't your grandfather's spy movie. This is Mission hmm. Impossible. We can see through these glasses. Can you imagine a camera so small as it could be worn on a pair of glasses? Now, there's no lens on it, Ben. So they are still sci-fi movie <laughs> bullshit. But a lot of the technology is just so old-fashioned. And it's, it's gas. It's so, it's so period. Um, but anyway, I watched it. And I watched it for the first time. I watched it for the first time since I saw it in 1996. And I remember in 1996 that I flippin' hated this film. Because... Go on. I had no idea what was going on and who was who and who was behind what. And after 30 years of spy movie franchises... Now, this is straightforward to follow. (laughs) This is very easy and clear to figure out who's who and who did what. Yeah, it's absolutely fine. It's a well-made film that does its job just fine. I went back and watched... I I went back and read some reviews from the 90s. And the reviews from the 90s are incredible. They're like, incredible special effects, amazing action sequences, gorgeous cast, impossible to tell what's going on due to its convoluted storyline and highly fictional technology. It's like, no, it's easy. It was fucking John Voight. He did it. John, John Voight is the baddie. He's the yeah. bad guy. Yeah, but that becomes abundantly clear after about 15 minutes. It's not that complex. But it felt complex. It felt very complex in 1996. I think whoever... I, I cannot remember who directed or wrote this for the life of me. Brian De Palma. Um, is it actually Brian De Palma? Yeah. <laughs> That's hilarious. I didn't I didn't do that intentionally at all. Um, however, very, very funny. So uh, Brian De Palma obviously read the word cloak and dagger at some point. He said, oh, I'll do that in a movie. I'll just do that in a movie. Because what we get, Michael, and I, I can understand, I suppose, where reviewers were coming from back then. Because Ethan Hunt in this, Michael doesn't know what's going on. And I think we're supposed to feel a bit of his confusion. There's there's a few different tactics used throughout the film. And spoilers for a film that came out 27 years ago. 27 years ago. And I already said it's John Voight who did it. Yeah, so we've already spoiled it. But anyway, Ethan Hunt sees his entire squad eliminated in front of him on a job. And he goes back mm. to the safe house of this. And he begins to try and unravel the mystery of... Why was my entire team targeted and eliminated? And that causes such a paranoia in him that I think is actually so well put across on the screen. They do all these trippy kind of camera effects when Ethan's having a bit of a panic attack Mm. or a a wave of paranoia and the screen warps a little bit from his perspective. And it's not, it's not like a, 
It's not a zoom cut like we might see in a Marvel film for realisation where we zoom in on the face and we see them twist. It's nothing like that. It's kind of a classic Hitchcock widen the angle of the camera and shift it around a little bit so the room looks like it's distorting in a weird way. You know, it's it, there are so many interesting techniques used. But Ethan Hunt can trust nobody. Nobody, Michael. One of his old team members, it turns out, they survived as well. There's a little bit of a love interest set up there. But can he trust her, Michael? We'll never know. Hmm. We'll never know. No, he gives her a very erotic pat-down. Yes, there's there's the world's most intimate needing of consent pat-down I've ever seen. Very aggressive erotic (laughs) pat-down. Very aggressive. But he has to assemble the new team, Michael... The new squad, if you will, and we we get what is now a what is now a franchise staple, Michael, in Ving Rhames. Ving Rhames comes back time and time again, and we got everybody's favorite Frenchman, Jean Reno. I don't know if he's my favorite Frenchman, but he is fabulous, Ben. Yeah, it's a great little it's a great little side squad he assembles. The first squad he has gets absolutely shit mixed in spectacular fashion, <laughs> including one of the most shocking deaths of all time of noted A-lister of the time Emilio Estevez. Just gone. Just gone. He gets stabbed in the face with spikes. It's it looks awful. very sore. It's it's awful. It's really really bad. That that entire shady sequence at the beginning, Michael, is it Vienna? Or Venice? Prague. Or is it? Prague. Prague. Oh, of Prague. course it's Prague. Of course it's Prague. But, uh, uh, Michael, that uh, there are some horrific deaths in that. There's a real panic among the operatives that something has gone wrong. And they are systematically eliminated one by one by one. And it's such a gripping opening sequence, but so alien to a modern blockbuster. Like, today you would have to have the big booms and the explosions and the CGI monster or a callback to a CGI monster from the first movie. But in in this one, what we have instead is a slow, steady, kind of psychologically taught elimination of this man's entire ally and friendship group. Mm. And I suppose the rest of the movie is Ethan Hunt dealing with that trauma. I, I have to say, like... I don't think the Bourne franchise would have done as well without Mission Impossible 1. I think there's a lot of DNA, especially in the first half of that film. The first half in particular. The first half of Mission Impossible kind of shaped a lot of the European-centric American operative films that we saw after that, like Jason Bourne. So what I mean there, Michael, is the entire first half of Mission Impossible 1 is it becomes this very different type of spy movie. It's it's taut, it's intense, it's very darkly shot, that initial scene. And even the mm. small apartment where Ethan Hunt kind of starts to piece it all together, it's not a blockbuster scene. He doesn't go to a spy cave or he doesn't return to HQ with bells and whistles and a gadget man saying, take this with you, Ethan. It's a pen that can irradiate plutonium and you know it's we don't see any of that this is a man that has everything taken from him and is then plopped down in a shitty apartment hidden away in Prague and he has to piece his life together from absolute trauma but I don't think things like Jason Bourne could have happened without that scene 
because for me, mm. the first half of Mission Impossible created that dank European kind of desperation in a spy movie. The thing is, we've gotten so used to modern spy movies being these world-trotting, globe-trotting, destination-hopping movies. But very few movies were made in Prague in 1996. Prague in very 1996 few. was nearly still behind the Iron Curtain, Ben. Like, Indeed. Now, we'll hop, on, we'll hop on a flight to go to Prague for the weekend. But people weren't doing that in 1996. Prague was still mysterious and eastern and scary. Yeah, it was still a terrifying place filled with Cold War vibes. Exactly, Ben. That scene in the apartment when he goes back and he accesses the internet for the first time and it uses the internet in 1996 to find the villain is one of the most gas scenes I have ever seen in my life with retrospect of what the internet has become. Yeah, it's now just this behemoth of a thing. But I I, I think that doesn't he use like the internet as it was originally intended as an interagency kind of connectivity machine isn't that isn't no. that kind of what we're he seeing he goes on usenet ben he goes on usenet <laughs> and he goes on usenet and he's been told that the person behind this calls it job 314 and he goes on the internet and he searches for job and he gets no results and the thing pops up saying no results found <laughs> it's fucking hilarious and then uh then he goes Job three fourteen. So he gets a Bible and goes and searches the internet for Bible. <laughs> it's, it's fucking hilarious. And basically, he emails everybody on the internet with the username Job, and says, "I have the money. Come and meet me." And we get a montage of him doing it in different languages. Imagine brute force finding someone on the internet these days. Imagine just having to email every person named Ben manually. It's like, <laughs> it's like going into the phone. It's like going into the phone book and just starting at the top and just going. Uh, 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 but I mean, that's a terrible analogy. That is a terrible analogy. But it's also probably the analogy that people who didn't really understand the internet could use in the 90s. Yeah. That, yeah, absolutely. You know, you can just just go through and email all the jobs and eventually you'll find the right person. That's not how email works. That's not how it works. It's no good. Yeah, but brilliant, brilliant scene. Tom Cruise is so young in this and such a maniac. Oh, he's so frantic. He's peak Tom Cruise. It's great. It's great. It... He, Tom Cruise is an eternal flame, Michael. And I know that sounds like I am now being paid by the Church of Scientology to promote their favorite yeah. icon. But yeah. Tom Cruise has maintained that manic energy for decades at this point. But this is a whole other beast in Mission Impossible 1. He is strung out for the majority of that film. And it is amazing to watch. He's an absolute maniac. Even when he's smiling at people he likes, he's terrifying. He just has that crazy Tom Cruise intensity. And he dials it up to like 11. He, It's funny. It's funny to say having... 
seen the latest Mission Impossible, bar, barring I'm dead, I reckon, there there has been a massive shift in the way that Tom Cruise approaches a certain scene. He kind of, he, he really worked on his quiet menace mm. era for the, the latest Mission Impossibles or like a kind of smoldering intensity that he goes for. But here it's just, I've got to fix this. I've got to do this. I will do this. Don't cross me. I'll kill you. And it's 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 insane to watch. I'm a young maniac. I'm a young maniac. Who's behind my mask? It's me, a, a maniac. <laughs> and then a big creepy smile. It's fucking absolutely terrifying. It's funny though because this is much more. This is a Tom Cruise movie. This isn't a Mission Impossible team movie. Like I think no. it was. In in uh, the TV show was about a team, a squad, as it were, kind of squad goals. And the big twist of this was yes. killing off the squad. Because Emilio Estevez was a big enough name in the 90s that this was a shocking way to twist, start a movie. Yeah, huge. Throwing away Emilio Estevez. Yeah, yeah. Uh, And, you know, more women than men on the team as well, which is very progressive in 1996. Um, And not just eye candy, they were part of the team. Weird for 1996. Yeah, but then they all got fridged. (laughs) They, They all got murdered or were in on it. But then... Even when he rebuilds his new team, they're nowhere near as developed as the squads are in the later Mission Impossible movies. Yeah. I mean, one of the the big things, and again, a spoiler is, one of those team members never makes a comeback, Michael. We never see Jean Reno in another Mission Impossible. So either he was fucking awful um, on set. Well, Ben, he gets blown up. Or it just didn't happen. Oh, I forgot that bit. Oh, I forgot gets, that bit. He that gets bit's blown very up in the important. helicopter, remember? That bit's very important because he's a big double crosser, Michael. Oh. Yeah, he's one of the baddies. He's one of he's the baddies. He recognises the knife. The, oh, other, the other thing that that movie gave us, Ben, is one of the most imitated movie scenes in, in movie history. Exactly, very good. I don't know, it looks like you're telling me to, like, don't shoot, but I think you're doing a Tom Cruise dangling from a, a cable. I am, in fact, doing a Tom Cruise dangling from a cable. What a fabulous scene. Uh, Michael, everything about modern spy movies owes everything to that scene. The the tension, the pizzazz, the the high stakes of the vault. Yeah. You know, it, 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 we, saw, we saw that imitated in a different font across the board afterwards. Oceans and Eleven makes the vault the big thing. Uh you know, I can't think of any other ones off the top of my head. For some of the reason, Ocean's Eleven was only too ready to lap in there. <laughs> but, <laughs> that dreadful, uh, but, that dreadful one where magic is real, so none of the stakes really matter. What's oh, that one called? God, uh, the magicians. Yeah, um, the Hulk is in it. Now you see me too. Right. Now you see me one and two. Now you see me one. I will never forgive, Michael. I will never forgive. Now you see me. Two for not saying now you don't. Now you yeah. see me is the name of the first film. The second one should have been now you don't. Yeah. Fucking no, shame. Now you see me too. Shame. Yeah. Absolutely on shame them. On but <laughs> it, you're right. That vault is a seminal scene, and the concept of the high security vault, 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 uh, becomes 
a staple of Hollywood after that. There are loads of heist movies and heist scenes where we've got to get into the vault. And it's 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 a whole thing, Michael. It's gas. I bet you we could do a whole podcast episode on vault break-ins. But not just vault break-ins. Vault break-ins that specifically ape that scene. Like the yeah. lowering down on the wire and the, the beat of sweat dropping and catching in his hand... The knife that Jean Reno drops spinning through the air and sticking in the table just as the guy opens the door. Fabulous scene. Yeah, we'll call it I'm In. Um, I'm that's in. A, that'll be the name of that episode. When Jean Reno drops the knife, I audibly went, <gasps> and it's very rare for movies to get like a reaction like that out of me. But I genuinely did go, <gasps> like you oh, clumsy no. French fuck. Oh no! It's a me, Mario. <laughs> John, you fool! It's a high takes yeah. mission. Sort your shit mm. out. Yeah. Um, but ah, oh, Michael, a great film. Um, and looking forward to seeing the the bloody next one as well. Um, we we'll probably go see it in the cinema together, Michael. We'll hold hands. And we we'll probably will. Funnily, funnily enough, Ben, I think it's going to be like the intervening twenty seven years have had such an effect on this franchise. I don't think me having seen that was going to make any difference because there might as well be different franchises and different characters. 100%. The, I suppose like anything over 27 years, Michael, it changes quite a bit. Um, yes. But uh, Mission Impossible 1 is uh, the the pale shadow of its successors. It's It's such a different film. The stakes have changed completely. The attitude... I mean... Even between one and two, Michael, the the stakes changed dramatically. John Woo directed Mission Impossible 2 with Sean Bean playing a classic villain. And um, Sean Bean? That was all... Sean Bean is in Mission Impossible 2, isn't he? Oh, no, it's the other Scottish guy. It's um, it's the guy who dropped out of Wolverine. Um, He has an interesting name. He has an interesting name. He pops up in loads of stuff. He's going to be Wolverine. uh, Well, I'm going to spin my wheels. So... We're doing a little race here, ladies and gentlemen. This is very exciting podcasting. <laughs> oh, ladies and gentlemen, I've got Michael at the post. I'm coming around the corner. He has a key in. Doing he's going Scott. through. He's searching. Ah, oh. and Michael, the first co-host of the podcast, pips him at the post, ladies and gentlemen. It's um, Duke Scott. Duke Scott's in it. But Michael, completely different film. There's slow motion doves. There's there's several several Michael um, slow motion walks away from explosions. By Tom Cruise. Uh, The opening scene could not be more different from the one that we got in Mission Impossible 1. In Mission Impossible 2, Ethan Scott is free climbing at the outside of a rock, Michael. Ethan Hunt, sorry, Ethan Hawke is a very different man. Ethan Hunt is, is free climbing out in the Nevada wilderness somewhere. And he gets a Mission Impossible call. It's probably El Cap. He's probably free climbing El Cap, which hadn't yeah. been done at that stage. But it's Tom Cruise as Ethan yeah. Hunt. So get him on up there. But Michael, two polar opposite films you could not find. And I guess Mission Impossible 2 did slightly better. So they went with that tone. Mm. Yeah, yeah. And followed mm. it through from that. Um, but yeah, yeah it's, it's, it's weird. It's very enjoyable. It's especially enjoyable with the franchise having grown so big and so enormous to go back and watch this almost unrelated first film fabulous yeah. stuff altogether. 
great stuff all together. Ladies and gentlemen, yes. which is your favourite movie in the Mission Impossible franchise? There's a few different places you can tell us. You can find us on the interwebs at www.shomrabeug.com, S-E-O-M-R-A-B-E-A-G.com. It means tiny room in Irish. You can find us on Instagram at Listen Podcast. It means Listen in English. You can find us on bloody YouTube at Listen Podcast. You can find us on TikTok at Listen Podcast. But the best place to get in touch with us, ladies and gentlemen, is to hop up on the Discord down in the description. Hop up on it. Like it's 1996 and you're on Usenet. Usenet, you can find us. If you don't find the first Shiluxia Listen, keep searching. Email them all until you get in touch with us, ladies and gentlemen. Yeah, do. That'd be good fun. That'd be good fun. That'd be good fun. And then send us some of the best replies if you ever find us. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Goodbye. All right. See you next week, everybody, where we're talking about something else.